Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you and to be seen by you. And for those who don't know me, my name is Ephraim, and um, it's a blessing to be able to share the word of the Lord with you this afternoon. We're in our second installment, no, second, our next episode of the book of John as we look at the Superman who is human and divine, the one and only, the true Superman who is Jesus the Christ. And then we're in John chapter 2. Now, It's such a blessing to be able to enjoy good times. It's such a blessing to be able to share in good times. And yet we appreciate that life is such that it has a tendency to distress the program. Some might say throw a spanner in the works. Some might say um, pour oil on your water. Or even water in your wine. And um, all of us as individuals have to wrestle with that. The reality is that we don't just look for good times in the party scenarios. But we look for good times in life. We desire life to be a good time. And there are all sorts of things that we pursue in the hope that we will find that sense of fulfillment and that good time experience in those things. That in those things we will have a good time. For some, it may be relationships. You know, it may even be in our family relationships. And in our relationships, we desire them to be all that they possibly could be. And that they would be free from issues and Drama and all of those kind of things. Some would say, free from the wahala. (laughs) Uh. And yet still, we have to endure them. We have to work through these things. And as we look at chapter 2 here of John, and as we meet Jesus in this scene, uh, may our hearts be delighted as we meet the Savior in this setting. This, for me, I tell you, you know what? It's a challenging job to to preach God's word. It's a fearful thing to step and speak as one who's going to speak on God's behalf. And yet, there are hidden blessings. You know, as we wrestle with the text in preparation, undoubtedly, the text wrestles with us. And there's a way in which I feel like I've seen Jesus differently. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get that over, but I've had the blessing of that. (laughs) I'm hoping you might have a little taste of what I've been enjoying as I've been just meditating on Jesus in this chapter. And so let's pray and see what the word of the Lord has to say to us about those Good times. 
Father God. Ah, oh, Lord, you're too good. <laughs> Lord, thank you for just the way in which you so intricately reveal yourself. Lord, you said, you said that we're to seek and we will find. There are so many people, Lord, in life trying to find their way. They're trying to seek the meaning of life. They're trying to even know you. And Lord, we see you revealed in the person of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and how wonderful you are. Lord, it's not even just that you've revealed yourself, but Lord, when we behold you, we see just the wonder of who you are. And Lord, I pray that you'd captivate our hearts today with the wonder of who you are. You are amazing. You're phenomenal. We bless your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. John chapter 2. Quite a familiar passage for um, many. We're at the wedding in Cana. Um, Let's walk through this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, they're at a wedding. Now, there are some things that don't change. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. I know that um, we have a number of newlyweds. We've had the, the blessing and privilege and pleasure of marrying a number of couples over the past years um, that we've been a church. And, um, you know, weddings now are the same as weddings then. As we meet Jesus in this scene at the wedding in Cana, and you have to understand, Cana's a small village. It's a small village that's, it, it wouldn't even be called a town. It was walking distance from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And um, that would be a, a bigger population. Um, they said that Nazareth might have had a population of about 500 people, so if you can call that bigger. Cana was even smaller still. So as this wedding uh, occurs in Cana, um, it says that Jesus' mum is there, and John doesn't in his gospel refer, refer to Mary by her name. It could be, they say, because he doesn't want her to be confused with other Marys that he, he references um, throughout um, there could be other reasons, but we just note that he refers to Jesus' mother apart from her name. And so she was there, and then we see that Jesus also was invited with his disciples. So this wedding was a, a, a social highlight of the local calendar. It was a, a wedding that, as now, would have resulted in invitations going far and wide. Now, nowadays, weddings are so expensive, people are having to, to, to watch the number of invites and the number of people attending because you can only cater for so many people, right? And then you've got the drama of who do we invite from your side and who do we invite from your side? I see all the engaged couples like nodding their head like, yeah, I feel your pain, I know that. And you've got all of these challenges. 
In those days, one of the things that really marked uh, a successful wedding, if you like, a good wedding, was the fact that the invitations were open and that all who knew the individuals and even friends of friends could come to the wedding. That would give the occasion an added sense of status. So Mary was there, and we take it she was invited. It's quite possible that Jesus was also invited, but then his disciples came along with him. And very often at weddings, being the social occasion that they were, they would invite notable people. They would invite notable people and their entourage. And so Jesus being a teacher, um, having been introduced in chapter 1, and, and testified to the significance of who he is by John the Baptist, as he's called his disciples and they've acknowledged who he is, his identity is becoming clearer now within the community. And so he's there with his disciples. And you can imagine the, the scene. It's a wedding. Like we can't, forget, we can't just read this on the page and not really begin to get a feel. It's a wedding. What do you do when you're getting ready for a wedding? You dress up. Now, some be like, oh, well, you know, maybe they was poor in those days. and then, You know, they dressed up for weddings. We see even in Jesus' um, parable um, about the, the wedding feast. And there was the individual who was challenged. How did you get in here without the, the, white, the right wedding garments on? You're not appropriately attired. And so Jesus gave that example because it was customary for them to wear whatever it is that they wore. To weddings. Jesus is there. He's not having to preach. I love them weddings. <laughs> He's a guest. Able to come and just chill. He's probably running some joke with the disciples. With the man them just there. And everyone's dressed off. Imagine the scene. Wine is flowing. And we know wine is flowing. In fact it becomes a problem. It's good times. It's good times. I think about this setting. And I think about the fact that Jesus' first miracle is introduced to us in the setting of a party. For me, that, that's, that's already, we could have done the argument right there. We could just finish this. The fact that Jesus performs his first miracle, as we see in verse 11, in the setting of a party. A wedding party. And it's not like he went there on a missionary endeavor. I'm going to preach at the party. I'm going to draw men to myself. Jesus was there to enjoy the party. Now, historians say that Jewish weddings were a party. They were, they were a celebration. In fact, certain weddings would be even seven days of celebration. It's not just, you know how we do it, to the church. To the church, you might have like the, the sit down and then you've got the after party, but it's over. So weddings were big deals. They were big celebrations. And they were very intentional about celebrating a wedding 
in those days wasn't a wedding unless they celebrated. So you can appreciate that there was revelry. And this is where we meet Jesus about to perform his first miracle. Now for some of us, when you really think about that, that should already begin to present Jesus in a different light because we don't see church like that. We don't see God like that. We don't see God interested in party and celebration. We're somber, morose, dour, because we're holy. Some of us trying to be more holy than Jesus. Come on now. Somebody starts cracking a little joke and we're like, hmm. <laughs> Prayed in our hearts, Lord. Just sanctify them a little more, Lord, we pray. Seriously. We meet Jesus dressed with a mandem in a wedding. Praise be to God. Now, as they're there, Enjoying this occasion, celebrations going on, wine is flowing. Verse 3, we see there was a problem. The wine ran out. The wine ran out. Now some of you think to yourself, why is that such a big problem? I mean, if the wine runs out, make them drink water. Why not? Once it's finished, it's finished. We can only do so much, right? We can only cater so much. Not in this culture. You see, in this culture, hospitality was a very high commodity. It was, it was a very high value within the culture. You remember Jesus um, gives the, the analogy of um, in Luke 11 where he talks about knock. And it will open to you. Seek and you will find. Ask and you shall receive. And then he talks about if somebody comes to your house at night, will you not open to him? And some of us will be like, no. Somebody's knocking on my door at three in the morning for sugar. They can stay out there. It's okay. I don't really feel any guilt. It's fine. I just, I got work in the morning. I'm going to sleep. And, you know, if they've got a problem, they can drop a note through the door. But in that culture where hospitality was such a high premium, it was a, it was a disgrace not to be hospitable and to be able to cater for others and to bless others. So the fact that the wine ran out was set to disgrace the couple, the family. And as we see, we'll see. The, 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 the wedding planner. Because <laughs> you never knew they had wedding planners those days. Huh. So the wine ran out. There was no option to just give them water. I want you to imagine this. You invite someone around your house for dinner. You've invited them. You've told them to come. You're providing for them. They've not eaten. Something happens. Dinner goes wrong. Food burns. There's no food. 
do you think that you could, in all good conscience, just, you know, give them a bowl of cereal? Look, you know what, I know I, I invited you for dinner, but didn't quite work out. You like Weetabix? You're going you're gonna to go to lengths. You're going to be, look, I just need to, um, I just need to pop out. Chinese. KFC if you have to. You're going to get something. Because you know it would be a shame and disgrace. You've invited the person to your house for dinner and you've got no food to give them. I remember one time I offered somebody a lift. <laughs> oh gosh. I was like, yeah, I'll give you a lift, don't worry. You know when somebody stays late because they know they're getting a lift? <laughs> Lord of mercy. Who told me to offer them a lift on that night? So we get in the car, we, we drive about 50 yards, engine light comes on, the, the dashboard starts screaming at me, stop, stop, stop. And I'm thinking, oh no, this is, this is a relatively new car now. We, we've not long got this car. Not, we're not, not brand new as in the model, but it was, it was new to us. We're not expecting problems with it. Dashboard screaming, stop, stop. And I'm thinking, I have no idea what the problem is, but it looks serious. Pulled over. Open the bonnet, I'm looking. I don't know what to do. They're sitting in the car waiting to get home after they've missed all transportation. <laughs> and it's not like I'm, you know, loaded with cash to be able to just put them in a the cab. I start to sweat. I'm thinking, what am I going to do with these people? I wasn't even so worried myself but I'm, about the car even. I'm just thinking about, I've offered these people a lift trying to be generous you get a sense of what's going on here when the wine runs out Jesus' mother comes to him and says they have no wine now there's a lot of questions that are asked around this interaction right here Mary, Jesus' mom comes to Jesus and says they have no wine why did Mary raise the issue in the first place. Well, there's one thing that we learn from this. We don't know exactly the relationship between her and the couple getting married or the family hosting the affair. But we know, as we do experience to a certain extent within our culture, that culture was community-oriented. Everyone shared a sense of ownership and a sense of responsibility for their brother, for their sister. Now, we don't know if Mary was involved in serving. She may well have done. She's a genuinely servant-hearted woman. And yet still, we see her take on board the pain of those who are experiencing what at at present is a kind of hush-hush issue. It becomes evident that everybody doesn't know about this and the fact that the wine's run out. But Mary knows and she shares the burden. How many of us are ready to share another person's burden when it's an issue that may have nothing to do with us? Generally, especially in London, somebody could be dead dying on the road. We just kind of walk around them like we're inconvenienced. Carry on about our business. 
And sometimes you get what they call those good Samaritans, right? But even for us on a day-to-day basis, as we're in fellowship, as we're in community, how much do we care about the concerns of our brothers and sisters? How ready and willing are we ready to, to represent their concern to others or even to the Lord? We don't know why Mary brought this to Jesus, but we learn a lot from it. We acknowledge our sense of community responsibility when we talk about children. It takes a village to raise a child. But you know what? Community goes beyond that. Community doesn't exist just for children. We exist for one another. We are our brother and sister's keeper. And it's a blessing to see the way that Mary takes ownership of the situation as if it were her problem and goes to Jesus. Now, why did she go to Jesus? Again, there's much speculation around this. We don't know exactly why. But she goes to him and she says, they have no wine. We can explore a few things as to why Mary went to Jesus. And maybe his response kind of gives us a little indication. But you know what? The question one commentator asked is this. Why not go to Jesus? Remember, this isn't just her son and she knows it. Why wouldn't she go to Jesus? And it's the question that we are faced with. Why don't we go to Jesus? There are often situations in our lives where we experience challenges. We experience that water being poured on our wine. And it may seem not so significant or it may seem manageable to us. And we don't take it to Jesus. As if Jesus is not concerned. He wouldn't care. As if, you know what, this isn't really his affair. It's my problem. We ought like the old school hymn writer acknowledge what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything, every single thing to God in prayer. So if we're asking why did Mary take this to Jesus, we're asking the wrong question. Why wouldn't she? And you think about it. Jesus at this time is said to be about 30 years old. He's grown up in the house with his mother. It's suggested that the absence of Joseph, his stepdad, at this point suggests that he may have passed away. We don't know when that happened. We don't, we're not certain that this is the case here. We know by the end of the gospel that Joseph is not on the scene. Because from the cross... Jesus calls to John and says, behold your mother. And the, the, he's conferring upon John the responsibility of the eldest child to look after the parent. And he's now passing the baton to John. 
in order that John... So we know that Joseph's not around by the end of the gospel. So it may be that Mary lived with Jesus as a single mum for some years. Single mums be encouraged. But imagine living with Jesus as your son. He never gets anything wrong. He never has to guess. What do you reckon, Jesus? You know you're going to get the right answer, right? And so, it may well be that Mary's been used to bringing all of her concerns to Jesus because he is the fount of wisdom. And as this problem arises, she's thinking to herself, well, who else have I got to ask? Do you know Jesus to be the fount of wisdom? The Lord is so faithful. May we be encouraged when we reflect on the testimony of what God has done in our lives. You consider what God has done in your life. It doesn't matter how close or how far your relationship is from him. God has been at work in your life. Jesus has been working in your life. Take a moment to reflect on what the Lord has done in your life. And where he's brought you from. And what he has done for you. And as you think about the challenges and concerns that are in front of you right now. Be encouraged by the faithfulness of the Lord. Because he's never failing. And so she says to Jesus, there's no why. And Jesus turns around and says, woman, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, you could think Jesus is enjoying himself. He doesn't want no one to, to... distress the program he's, he's, he's having a nice time he's not like I say he's not preaching he's not on duty he's there with the guys he's chilling oh why are you troubling me with this some would even say hmm that sounds a bit off key the way he's answered her woman how are you going to talk to your mum like that listen <laughs> some of us know what it <laughs> The repercussions of such a slip of the tongue. We can't even think it because our, our expression would say it and it's over. Laid out. Angel singing. <laughs> but it's, it doesn't translate well for us because it's not a derogatory or a dismissive term in the way that he's being disrespectful. He is, many say, Responding in a way that acknowledges that, okay, you are my mum, but I'm not interacting with you as my mum right now. It's, it's a bit like if someone might use the term ma'am or madam. There's a certain respectfulness there, but also there's, there's, no, um, there's a certain formality as well with which you're addressing the individual. So you're, you're recognizing that there's a certain formal um, relationship. Maybe it's because you don't know them personally and so or whatever. And it's this kind of communication that Jesus is entering into. Some go on to say that Jesus here, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, is yet again establishing a boundary with regards to how Mary, his mother, ought to be viewed. Because there are many who look at this text and begin to venerate Mary, and begin to exalt Mary 
as being worthy of worship. Even within the Roman Catholic Church, they will call Mary the co-mediatrix between us and God. Basically meaning that, okay, Jesus has come to bring us to the Father, but Mary helps him. And, and if we have a problem getting to God through Jesus, we can just slip a word in Mary's ear because you know what? Look here, look what she done. She will put in a good word for us to the Savior. That's not what's happening here. That is a misuse of the text. And Jesus' response notes that sense of formality with regard to their relationship. You see, Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 4 that his purpose is to do the will of who? Not the mother. To do the will of the father, his father in heaven. And so, he wasn't taking instruction from his mother at any time with regards to his divine mission and purpose. He says, my hour has not yet come. His hour for complete revelation and glorification. This term is used progressively throughout the gospel. He says it on a number of occasions in chapter 7, chapter 8. He says it in chapter 12, even 13. And Jesus was very aware of his purpose and mission. He was very aware of his calling and the mandate that he was to fulfill. And he appreciated that this is not the time when everything's going to blow up and, and the, my glory is going to be entirely revealed. Now, yes, he will give a glimpse of his glory. But he's working to his father's schedule. And I, I read this and I just prayed and I said, Lord, oh God, that I would know you. That I would know you, Lord, in such a way that I would be filled with not just the knowledge of your will, but the knowledge of your when. Often we wrestle with the will of God. What's God, Lord, what do you want me to do? What should I do in this situation? And then we come to a place of, of, of clarity and we, okay, we, we, we understand that this is what the Lord wants me to do. But then we're just hesitant. When do we do it? When, when should I make that decision? Is it the right time to hand in my resignation and move? Or, or do I need to wait? And, and yet Jesus was very clear on not just the Father's will for him, but the Father's when. The Lord's able to help us grow in relationship with him. That we would be so close and so intimate to him that we would have a, a, a clearer appreciation for his will for our lives. Some of us would be happy with just that. And I would say to you, God's word is his will. So that's always the place. You, you know, somebody, I'm waiting for a word from the Lord. I just need a word from you, Jesus. Just hand them the Bible. It's all there. And yet that we would also know God's when for our lives. As we progress in his will. Seeking to glorify God. And so, his mum, undeterred by this, turns around to the servants. Those who are serving at the, at the wedding. 
who obviously were aware of the issue. And I don't know. I mean, they're standing there privy to this conversation. So maybe she just said to them, look, what's the problem? She sees the murmuring and the, the scurrying. And they say, you know what, the wine's run out. And she's like, okay, come with me. I know a man who can. And she takes them. So her response is, despite it seems her receiving a knockback, she says to the servants with enduring faith, you know what, do whatever he tells you. She trusts in the compassion of Christ. The compassion of the Savior. She knew that Jesus couldn't sit there being aware of the problem and not do anything. Now, maybe she was expecting a miracle. He hasn't done any yet. Verse 11 says that this is the first one. So maybe she wasn't. Maybe she was just expecting him to give them some wise instruction. But she knew that he had the answer. Jesus has the answer for all of your shortage of wine in your life. Jesus alone has the answer. Now, in the Psalms, we're told that wine is associated with joy. And speaking of the Messiah, it says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So people eat well, drink well, and experience merriment. And yet, the Savior has more joy within himself than any good times that life can offer. Jesus has the answer for our, the lack of wine, the lack of good times in our lives. Now, let me clarify, because some might be thinking that this is a, a raging endorsement for drinking. Drinking and drunken. The way that they used to drink wine back then was that they used to actually dilute their wine with water. Now, the wine was alcoholic. There are some people that would say, oh, you know, it was unfermented wine, and so therefore, you know, they would drink as much as they like. It wasn't unfermented wine. They never had refrigeration. In the heat of the, the, the Jewish climate, the Israeli climate, it's going to ferment. And so what they would do is they would dilute the wine up to as, as many as, as, as much as 10 parts water to one part wine. As up, up to as much as, sometimes it might be three parts. And they didn't drink to get drunk. Even then, I mean, we understand Ephesians 5 says to those who are following Christ, do not be drunk with wine. So it is not befitting, it is not becoming, it is not right or appropriate for one who professes Christ to be given to drunkenness. This wasn't just a New Testament mandate. You look at numerous proverbs and see drunkenness is rebuked. 
see that drunkenness is discouraged. That furthermore, those who are given to drunkenness are considered to be fools. They're considered to be weak-willed and lacking character. And that's generally within the, the culture. So they had a culture of being able to enjoy wine within moderation. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So they're saying that in total, these six jars, which would have been huge jars, may have held in total about 150 liters. Um, in volume combined, about 30 liters each or so. And they were there for the Jewish rites of purification. What's that about? Well, commentators are not absolutely certain, but some would say that it was for the, the, the washing of hands, which was a, a Jewish um, practice, and we'll look at Mark 7 in just a moment. Some say that it was for the, the, that amount of, of water that would have been held in those jars were there for baptisms. So if you wanted to baptize a proselyte and, and introduce them to Judaism and you weren't able to get to the Jordan because it was a way off, you would utilize this water that conformed to the standards of Jewish purification. In this situation, that's less likely. And what we see go on in the gospel, um, in, and the, the, the other gospels record, the way in which the disciples actually... Um, interacted with or their attitude towards the whole issue of cleansing the hands before eating. Um, look with me at Mark 7 here. This is very interesting. In Mark 7 verses 1 to 13, we see the Pharisees challenging Jesus about the behavior of his disciples. Jesus, they're your disciples, and they're going on off-key. They gathered to him, verse 1, with some of the scribes. They'd come up from Jerusalem. So this is like the head honchos. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, let's just clarify. This isn't like sitting down to eat your dinner without washing your hands. We know that's nasty, right? Without using your sanitizer. That's not what this... This is talking about ritual washing. Um, so you may see um, expressions of that within Islam. 
where they will, they will have a, a bowl and they will wash their hands a certain way and they will wash up to their elbows and then they will dry and then they will go back again and they will wash a certain way up to the elbows. Well, the, the Pharisees had this practice of ritual hand washing before eating. But we understand that that wasn't something that God instructed to them that instructed them to do. It was a tradition of the elders. So this was a man-made tradition. They invented this to show their religious austerity and, and piety. So, we see that in um, verse 4, not only did they wash their hands in a ritualistic fashion, but they would also wash cups, pots, copper, cu copper vessels, and dining couches even. Now, again, we think of a couch and we think of a big sofa. Um, but they would have like little um, kind of stool-like... Um, I'm trying to think there's a name that people... Puffet is one... Like, that's how I always hear it from growing up, Puffet. Every get the buffet for me, but it there was there's another name like I, I can't remember the phrase, uh, ottoman. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But small, like really quite small ones, with and they would have been cushioned. So again, these are things that they would recline on because their custom was to when they're eating is to recline on on a mat and they would lean on one of these little what they call couches, like a little ottoman, little buffet, and they, they would that's how they would um, position themselves. So they would ritualistically wash all of these things as an expression of their piety. So they ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so it suggested that Jesus' use of these ritual gallon jugs and the the, the, the water that would be in them for this miracle is such that it spawned, it set the tone for their attitude towards the human traditions, the earthly traditions, the man-made traditions that were being presented as necessary, as essential to be observed in order to honor God. We're going to come back to this after. Back to John chapter 2. Look what Jesus does. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they go, they collect water and fill the jars. They fill them up to the brim. This is 150 liters of water. So you think about a two liter bottle. 75 two-liter bottles worth. You imagine going back to the sink to fill that up bit by bit. Now, they may have filled them in, in using bigger containers, but it was a mission. It wasn't light work. They gave themselves to doing exactly what he said, not even appreciating or understanding why. What 
is this going to do to solve the problem of wine that has run out? Now, you imagine they've been celebrating for a, for a, for a while now. The wine's run out. So we don't know how long they've been celebrate, celebrating, but these servants have been on their feet. They've been working. They've been serving wine to the point where it's run out. Now they're being told to go and get all this water to fill these jugs. For what purpose? There's many of us here who have served at weddings and we know that feeling. It could very well have been easy for them to think, you know what, this is long. Jesus, I'm not trying to hear you, you know. I don't, understand what, what you're, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you've asked me to do it. And furthermore, I don't want to do it. I'm tired. And don't some of us feel like that when the Lord instructs us to do his will? We don't fully understand what's going on. We don't see what sense it makes. We're tired and it's long. And I don't want to do it, Lord. But look, verse 8. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So from the water that they have put into these jugs, they have now drawn from that water and they're taking it to the master of the feast, the wedding planner. And he tasted the water, which had now become wine. And did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So the, the wedding planner, planner was oblivious to this. What was, the servants knew what was going on. He didn't understand. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So the wedding planner goes to the bridegroom and he says to the groom. Hold on a minute. You got me here. I'm the one who's, because this is how it would work in those days. The wedding planner might be a family member. It might be somebody who's kind of hired in. But they were the one who organized everything. They called all the shots. And at the end of it, if it was a good wedding, the bride and the groom would bring them forward and salute them and celebrate them. And they would have their table spread out. With lavish provision for them to enjoy and sit down and take the weight off their feet once everybody had enjoyed the, the, their time. And so the wedding planner calls the bridegroom and he says, hold on, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So imagine, everybody's sober, Nobody's tipsy. Everybody's coming, ready for some food, ready for some drink. Their palates are highly sensitized, ready to enjoy it. You give them the good wine. He's like, but hold on, you've saved the best for last. You've saved the best for last. Why didn't we bring this out before? This is so like God. This has relevance. This has meaning to us in our lives. When we think about the joy that we seek, when we think about the joy that we desire, 
and even the lack of it in our lives, we're able to appreciate that the Lord always has better to come. And as we see glimpses of his glory in the here and now, we appreciate that we're able to expect better than what we experience now. But there's something bigger being communicated. Something that for many Christians these days, it's, it's, it's not readily appreciated. And that's the sense of eternal joy that Jesus gives. Not just happiness based on happenings, but joy, an eternal sense of joy. Jesus performed this miracle. This wasn't some David Blaine, some, what's the, the, the new one on the block now? Troy, or what's the other brother? Dynamo. This ain't, this ain't no some sleight of hand, camera trick. This is Jesus changing the physical properties of water at a molecular level into wine. Fine wine at that. This speaks to us of the time when the kingdom will be completed, will be consummated. You see, now we have a foretaste of God's glory. We have a foretaste of the wine of heaven. And we experience it, and yet we experience the dilution. And yet there will come a time when all that we understand to be life will pass away. And there will, we will enter into an eternal joy that will be unhindered, uninterrupted, undiluted. All of the delight that you desire, all of the good times that you wished were prolonged, will be experienced without measure, without limit. And, you know, I remember years ago in the faith, hearing certain preachers say, I, you know what, I hear about heaven all the time, and they're talking about streets of gold, and, but I don't need the gold then, I need it now. You never heard that? Real talk. And people began to despise the hope of heaven. And people began to despise the hope of, of glory that is to come. As if it was worthless and insignificant. Because now is what matters. But this is not what the kingdom of God promises. This is not all that the kingdom of God promises. People say, surely there must be more than this. There must be more to life. Well, there is, and it will come in due season. And Jesus is the one who is the eternal joy juice. For them, wine in this setting represented good times. Celebrate good times. Uh-huh. 
sing-along crew. And yet, we will celebrate good times in Christ Jesus. And there are many things now that will hinder our good times, but we ought not to be discouraged. I heard Pastor Rob talking about discouragement. And the reality is that we will face discouragement, but even in our discouragement, we can have joy. Because there is a certain hope that awaits us. We need to preach more about heaven and the heavenly hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Jesus was at a wedding, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What's the the main attraction? What's What's the big draw? It's not streets of gold and it's not, you know, fruit, trees that will always bear fruit in, in every season and the living waters of life. And God being with God. And we don't understand that every good thing that we experience in life is because of him. And is a mere reflection of the abundant goodness that is in him. He is good times. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We go through life and we endure trials. Some experience the pain of relationships that die. They die in divorce. Some experience the pain of professional failure. Businesses dying in bankruptcy. We experience the death of loved ones. I was speaking with a brother a couple nights ago. And he was telling me just about when his his daughter, um, she was 22 I think. She had a miscarriage. And he said it was then that it hit me. There's something about a woman losing a child that as a man we will never understand. And yet, we're able to look forward to that time when there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain. That God shall wipe away every tear. Why? Because the former things have passed away. Talk about celebration. Talk about good times. Talk about party. Ah, everything's going to be a wheel up. God is so good. And you know, the reality is that as we see Jesus in this setting, we should be encouraged that this is the trajectory, this is the, this is the, the, the destination of the kingdom. And we get, 
we're able to enjoy a taste of that now. And the Christian life, you know, the, the, the Pharisees, as they talked about hand washing, and as they talked about fulfilling the rituals, the fact that the disciples didn't obey the traditions of men, there are so many traditions, so many religious observances, even in our own church, even in our own lives, that we submit ourselves to. And it's not because God expects it of us. And there are means by which we can be robbed of our joy. Jesus is like, even as he performs this miracle, these pots that should have been used for the fulfillment of ritual, he used for the enrichment of people's lives. Sparing the bride and the groom the shame out of compassion. Providing joy and merriment for the people. Defying tradition. Jesus is that one who is the eternal joy juice. And it's only fulfilled in him. Those pots represented the law. Legalism will never provide us fulfillment. And as Jesus turned that ceremonial water into wine, which he later talks about being a picture of his blood with the disciples in the upper room, it shows us that, listen, good times and the promise of eternal joy only comes through Christ. I don't care which DJs you follow, which artists and celebrities you celebrate. I don't care how much money you think is going to do it for you or wh what girl or guy is going to complete you. Only Jesus provides eternal joy. Let's stand. And so may we repent of looking to any thing and anyone other than him. May we renew our hearts afresh to trust him. And maybe you've never come into relationship with Christ. You hear about him. You hear him spoken of. But you don't know what it means to have that that, that eternal joy dwelling in your soul that strengthens you even in the face of discouragement. All you need to do is, it's, it's, it's as simple as ABC, they say. Just admit that you're guilty before God and that you're deserving of his judgment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means put your trust in him to save you and satisfy you, him alone. Put your faith in him. Confess him as Lord. And truly, as you do so, the Bible says you will be saved. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the promise of eternal joy. We thank you, Lord God, 
for your abundant blessing to us in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the hope that he provides us, even in the face of pain, even in the face of sorrow, even in the face of hardship. When circumstances get us down and discourage us, we can still have joy because Jesus, you are alive. You went to your final hour. You faithfully fulfilled your mission to be crucified for our sin. But that wasn't the end of the story. After three days, you were raised from the dead unto newness of life, which you grant to all who believe in you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are our joy. Forgive us, Lord, for seeking joy, fulfillment, in any other thing. Forgive us, Lord. Refresh and renew our hearts, Lord, we ask, that you alone will be our satisfaction, that you will be our joy. The glory of your holy name we pray. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.